Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours through the power of cyberspace and imagination is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rich. Although, let's be fair, if you're imagining this, we've got to work on your creativity. I'm just, <laughs> just saying. Tom, I'm going to have to ask you to uh, cut the self-deprecation and save it for the next time we have some Oracle news. But we don't have a lot of that. Instead, we're going to do a little news or not going on here. This is where we have too many news stories to have in-depth discussion on each. So we're going to get Tom to tell me if it is news or not. And this, it's AWS reInvent specific. Just tons of announcements, as one would expect from reInvent. And we are going to try and cover as many of the big ones as we can. So let's get it started. Uh, Tom, first up, this came out just before reInvent, but Reuters reported that Amazon has designed a second generation cloud computing unit to succeed its Graviton ARM-based chip released back in 2018. So in chip news, it's clearly old in the tooth. The new chip will reportedly be based on ARM's Neoverse N1 architecture, give up to 32 cores, and claims to be about 20% faster than Graviton, although I didn't see if that was per clock or as a unit or whatnot. The chips will communicate over a high-speed fabric, no surprise there, allowing for multiple chips to speed up compute-intensive uh, tasks like image recognition. Tom, new Gravitons, news or not? No, I don't think it's news because I guarantee you people out there don't know if they're running on Graviton or not. It's like buying a Jeep for the tires. You're missing the point. <laughs> it's a really it's a really awesome analogy. I like that. Uh, next up here, let's see how we're doing on news here. AWS announced three new products that I think are aimed at what we will call cloud-hesitant organizations. First off, there's AWS Outpost. This was announced last year, but it's now becoming generally available, offering AWS-designed server racks that come with software links back to their cloud services, running in either AWS AWS native mode, or what I think is really interesting in VMware cloud on AWS configuration, kind of giving you even more of that mix of, uh, hey, you don't have to go all cloud quite yet. Then there's local zones was announced, uh, which will see AWS building small data centers in strategic locations outside of larger regions to help reduce latency. They're going to be starting in LA. And I imagine closer to urban centers where maybe it's not cost effective to build a giant data center, but smaller ones uh, definitely will be useful. Finally, there's AWS Wavelength, which is in partnership with Verizon to embed compute and storage services into uh, Verizon 5G equipment for ultra low latency. Tom, which one is the biggest news here? I want to say Outpost, even though it's technically it's a year old because it just GA'd. Mm. Uh, I really think, though, that that building other data centers is going to accelerate that. Because, I mean, let's face it, if I don't want to buy an Outpost and stick it on a site, I'd rather go somewhere local like, you know, L.A. or Chicago. So I, I ultimately, I think you're, you know, you're going to see more of that. Amazon's going to build out. I, I didn't see in the announcements with local zones, if that's going to be like you select that local, like is that going to be something configurable by the user or is that just purely a backhaul thing for Amazon where it's like, okay, I'm going to select US East, but it's actually going to run through this one, uh, you know, in New York, even though the, the main data center is based in Connecticut or, I, I, you know, I don't know exactly where all their data centers are, but I wonder if that's going to be something that's uh, not seen by the user, but useful for Amazon for maintaining that low latency. That would be interesting as well. Yeah, I think that's going to be their plan is the, you know, there'll be a pop there in LA, but you won't be able to select it. It'll just be US West one or something. Uh, all right. Next up here, AWS announced SageMaker Studio, which sounds like a terrible Photoshop shareware app, but is actually a web-based IDE for building and training machine learning workflows. This includes built-in sharing options for other data scientists and integrates with SageMaker Machine Learning Service. AWS trying to be a one-stop shop for data scientists here, Tom, news or not? 
No, it's not news. The five data scientists who listen to our show will probably <laughs> tell you they're doing something else. I mean, this is Amazon trying to hit every corner case that they can in the market to drag more people onto the service. Yeah, it's just, I, I mean, to me, this is one of those things, you know, like when Facebook rolls out something that it's just to keep eyeballs on Facebook.com or keep you in the app. Like that's what it just seems like to It'll allow you to spend an extra five minutes in there. And but I mean, I think the, the long term, the goal here is, yeah, there are people using SageMaker for inferencing and and, and for kind of that the the actual grunt work of uh, data science. But what I think is interesting is maybe going forward, this is a way to onboard people to start using those tools that might other, you know, maybe not otherwise you know, have, have this web-based IDE. So it, it makes it a little more friendly for people just getting started uh, in a weird, you know, I, I think that that's also the strategy. Maybe not appeals to their audience now, but a way to build it over time too. Mm-hmm. Not that they have problems building AWS customers, it seems like. <laughs> All right, next up here, AWS announced their Inferentia chips. They announced them last year, but they're launching them this year in Ferentia. I'm going to go with that. These chips promise to make ML model inferencing faster and more efficient, promising 2,000 tops and features integrations with TensorFlow, PyTorch, and MXNext uh, frameworks, as well as uh, support for moving between the frameworks uh, using kind of a, an open source protocol there. They're launching on EC2, coming to Container Service and SageMaker soon. AWS crashing Google TensorFlow processor party. News or not here, Tom? Ooh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but this you're competing against Google's bread and butter in their area. You're you're not wanting to get real ML programmers. You're wanting to get businesses that already have AWS accounts that are like, hey, this ML thing sounds neat. We need to do something about that. Well, I think uh, this next announcement is along that same vein, because if you've ever wanted a machine learning powered service for internal enterprise search, Amazon Kendra might be what you need. Kendra is designed for organizations without ML experience and can help search across otherwise unstructured data, uh, kind of the white whale, uh, I guess, of search. The search uses natural language and uses ML to learn the intent and context of information within a document, as well as the relationship between the contents and the documents. It actually reminds me of a startup uh, called Cloudtena that I talked to a couple of years ago, kind of that same goal uh, in mind. Obviously, Amazon has probably a little bit more uh, resources to make that happen. But natural language ML searching for internal data. News or not here, Tom? Can it figure out what is a bridge in this picture so I don't have to do that anymore? <laughs> like, if it could do that, sure, that'll be news. But, and yeah, okay, great, fine, whatever. I, I do think it's interesting that this is internal search because you know, looking at that intent and context of information within a document seems like it has all sorts of privacy implications if that's to to anyone that's not, you know, uh, uh, an internal employee or something like that. So clearly yeah. very, uh, uh, very smart on their end. And then finally here in perhaps more novel news, AWS released Deep Composer, a 32 key two octave keyboard that lets developers create original melodies with pre-trained genre models that will transform into an original song within seconds. This is the third in a string of novel devices designed to show uh, novices the potential of machine learning. They did a racer, like a race car a few years ago that can learn as it's driving and stuff like that. But are, are these kinds of, I guess, thought experiments or, or proof of concepts for more general uses of ML news or not, Tom? This is not only news. This is the most important news story of the decade. You know, 50 years from now, when the society has changed and Wild Stallion's music has brought galactic peace, we will remember today. Today is the day that Amazon Composer made it all happen. 
This does make me wonder, though, that if I mean, theoretically, if if everything doesn't sound exactly the same, like if these if these models aren't so predictive that everything just sounds the same after a while, I do wonder if like if you're a stock music service or something like that, you know, that every YouTube video has underneath it like the same like ambient electronic that's all slightly different, but whatever. I, I do wonder if that's uh, this will be the death of that if it's uh, relatively affordable because you can use a software keyboard as well. The, the physical keyboard's just kind of especially for show, but uh, uh, all the back end stuff's available uh in software purely so that's i guess interesting. i have it on good authority that that what it's actually going to tune out turn out as a bunch of nickelback songs <laughs> well uh they are uh you know they are the face of rock and roll town so uh, i'd appreciate you being respectful uh next up uh kind of our first discussion story tom i know this was of interest to you palo alto networks announced it intends to buy apparetto they they always have to couch these acquisition stories they're definitely going to acquire apparetto they just have an intending to do so, I guess. Uh, Apparetto uh, made lots of waves with their micro-segmentation approach to identity-based access controls and seemingly is a natural fit for Palo Alto's Prisma security suite. 2019 has been a big year of acquisitions for Palo Alto. We've covered a number of them on the show, uh, but to kind of review here, they've acquired Twistlock, PureSec, Demisto, and Zingbox, which was an IoT vendor. I don't think we uh, covered that, that last one specifically, but they're now all under their roof and theoretically within that uh, cloud security suite portfolio. Is this their biggest effort, or is this a, just an effort to make their portfolio comprehensive and kind of situate how big the Apparetto acquisition is in this year of acquisitions, Tom? So Apparetto was, I believe, $125 million. So, you know, in terms of rocking the boat, it's it's probably, well, I say boat. Uh, Apparetto's open source version is called Trireme. And for all of you civilization fans out there, you know what that means. Um, this was not huge. This this was a feature that they needed to augment some of the stuff that they're doing with Demisto and Prisma, which is essentially securing cloud containers. Um, I've seen a lot of demos over the years. Uh, Dimitri Stilatis uh, founded Apparetto. And he's he's done a great job with it. Uh, I mean, when you if if you'd have told me four years ago, oh, you know, containers, uh, Kubernetes, that's that a thing? Yeah, 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 that's a thing. It's a thing. Um, they're building along those lines. So this was a good pickup for Palo Alto because I feel like Palo Alto is starting to de-emphasize their physical security appliances because um, when you think firewalls, you think Palo Alto, but Palo Alto doesn't want you to think firewalls when you think Palo Alto. They want you to think everything else. And this is a big component of that. And and I'm kind of curious to see how this all integrates into their their portfolio. Yeah. And, and that's kind of a trend, I think, with um, as security has broadened into uh, not just being like, you know, you know, uh, uh, threat intrusion prevention. Um, you know, we've seen companies like Fortinet kind of trying to make that same kind of pivot, uh, you know, into uh, being a offering solutions for, uh, I guess, not just single point, like when you think Palo Alto, you think firewalls, you know, expanding that kind of use case as well. So I, I do think that's a larger industry trend as well. Yeah. All right. Next up here, we had some interesting. Uh, hey, Tom, let's talk some politics. That's never controversial. Uh, Zach Whitaker at TechCrunch reports that of the 21 U.S. presidential candidates across both parties, only seven are using and enforcing the email security protocol DMARC, which verifies the authenticity of a sender's email and perhaps more importantly, rejects spoofed emails. Back in April, only Elizabeth Warren's campaign had enforced DMARC with the campaigns of Joe Biden, the former campaign of Kamala Harris, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, and Tulsi Gabbard, and Steve Bullock now using the protocol as well. Seven campaigns aren't using DMARC at all, while the remaining campaigns use the protocol only to verify authenticity, but not to reject those spoofs. Whitaker notes that the properly enforced DMARC policy would have probably prevented the phishing email that eventually led to the 2016 DNC email breach. 
Tom, why are why is campaign IT so hard? And why of all the campaigns, I was shocked to see that Andrew Yang hadn't uh, put this up here. He's seemingly like the Silicon Valley uh, candidate, right? I, I why why is this so hard for these otherwise sophisticated organizations? Uh, one cobbler's kids have no shoes, and if you believe that, go check out the IT setup for most bars. Um, <laughs> yeah, bad. Um, Two, uh, the last time I did a salary survey for hottest jobs in IT, uh, campaign IT worker was nowhere on the list. And the reason why is because you get all this money that you then need to use to pay for ads and all kinds of other stuff. You, you don't use that to pay for the hottest, best technology. Um, given a choice between paying Cambridge Analytica millions of dollars to give you more results on you know, targeting ads or installing email security, uh, you, you're going to go for the return on investment, if you will. Uh, this is not an uncommon problem. IT is a cost center for most places. We've seen that, you know, bandied about a lot recently. Uh, this whole, you know, I, I, I'm going to say it, and I know I'm going to summon Bloody Mary when I say it, but digital transformation is the idea of taking IT and turning it into something that's not a cost center. We're fighting that in places that are, you know, in business monthly, yearly, making products, turning a profit, when you are working for basically what is a, a glorified volunteer organization every three or four years, digital transformation isn't going to happen anytime soon. IT is still a cost center. Um, yeah, I, okay, come find me in 2024. Hopefully we'll be off by email by that point and everybody will just be campaigning via TikTok. <laughs> Oh God, the dystopia will truly, truly be here. Uh, but you know, Tom, on that on that point, I, I want to remind our listeners: uh, we actually have a, a new episode of the On Premise IT Roundtable podcast out today, specifically looking at if digital transformation is a myth. Uh, maybe uh, for these uh, political campaigns, that seems to be the case. So uh, be sure to check that out as well if you're interested in a more in depth talk at that. But I thought that was really interesting. the The only thing for me, I guess, about that is, I, you know, I, I completely hear what you're saying, and and I agree with you for the most part. But like. DMARC is like a f like it's like a switch like it, it's not like something that requires this deep integration and it requires even to like spin up a cloud service or something like that like it's seemingly this should be the default um and, and that to me like that to me is like why wasn't this on from the you know from the start okay let's be fair I've been saying that about Amazon you know EC2 yeah. buckets for how long <laughs> and they literally just really they didn't even make it a default they just released a tool that'll scan EC2 buckets and say hey guess what it's open to the whole world <laughs> making it a default pisses people off so I, I get yeah. it trust me I'm gonna be sitting there on the soapbox right beside you going yeah listen to this guy but reality is inertia is a thing. All right, Tom, next up here, uh, you may have heard of the EU and uh, they like some regulation. Uh, the European Data Protection Supervisor issued its first sanctions against an EU institution, reprimanding the European Parliament for the use of a US-based digital campaign company called NationBuilder to process citizens' voter data. NationBuilder was used to process data collected through a website to encourage voter registration, collecting about th data on 329,000 EU citizens. The EDPS issued a reprimand for failure to publish the privacy policy on the site, 
kind of a minor thing, maybe, I guess, in the long term. But the bigger issue was lack of awareness of the extent of the processing being carried out by third parties and the lack of prior authorization by Parliament as a data controller provided in advance of that processing. So that's kind of the bigger deal there. Ultimately, there was no fine because once they issued a recommendation, the EU went whoops and fixed it. Uh, but is this an example of a regulator being even-handed, you know, kind of going after itself, or a show that no organization is really prepared for this type of, uh, to be compliant in this kind of situation? I just love the summary that you have in the show notes. The EU is fighting the EU for breaking EU rules. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Now, this, this is actually exactly what they needed to do is to prove that they're, because this is one of the things we see a lot. It's like, oh, you know, Cambridge Analytica, you broke the rules, nobody cares. This is the exact opposite, which is we broke the rules, we're going to fix it, and we're going to prove that we're not going to just sweep things under the rug. Now, GDPR and uh, the new California law that's going to be coming out in just about three weeks, um, they've got, you know, they're, they're yeah, it, something yeah look it up um <laughs> it, it, trust me if you haven't looked it up yet you're about to get four thousand emails telling you why it's important um this is a huge deal for people because it touches so much stuff and people don't even understand that L listen i get it shadow it is a thing i don't have the tools i need to do this we'll just upload it to the service we'll scrub through the database <laughs> oops <laughs> now that data lives out there somewhere forever and you won't have control of it anymore. This is exactly what rules like the GDPR guidelines are designed to prevent, is someone doing something stupid with data I didn't give them permission to use in places, and then finding it before Johnny come lately hacker dumps the database, and then we get to be, you know, oh, EU voter database uh, exposed to the internet. No, no, that's not right, but makes for a good headline. I, and in terms of exposure, I mean, 329,000, that's like a drop. That's like, that's like 0.1. <laughs> so, I, you know, in, in the broad scheme of things, it's not that bad, right? Um, all right. Uh, next up here in, uh, hey, that's cool news. Researchers factored the largest ever RSA key. Yay. Factoring RSA 240, an RSA key that is 240 decimal digits and the size of 795 or 795 bits, breaking a 2010 record, as well as completing a computation of the largest ever integer discrete logarithm, breaking a 2016 record. This is the first time, however, that both records have been broken at the same time and using the same hardware and software. Usually both kind of have to be optimized for each task. What is significant, perhaps the most, is that the record was due to software optimizations rather than advances in hardware, with the researchers demonstrating their algorithm was able to increase performance by 33% on the identical hardware used to set the last discrete logarithm record back in 2016. Big news for cryptography, but can software save us from the decline of Moore's Law in the enterprise here, Tom? No, actually it can't. Um, first of all, uh, important note, uh, breaking records with key size, whatever, is the same as, you know, this movie is the fastest one to ever get to a billion dollars. Um, remember that that's the case because ticket prices are $25 each now. So uh, just because something's faster, bigger, better doesn't mean that the records are, you know, impressive. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, uh, Moore's Law is not what I'm worried about. Uh, it's quantum computing. Uh, for those of you who have probably been following along and hearing the little boogeyman in the back of the corner, uh, once a quantum computer hits a certain precision level, uh, it's basically going to invalidate all cryptographic algorithms, including RSA, instantly because of the way that quantum computers can create entanglement to uh, basically derive a key instantly. So it doesn't matter how big it is. It could be, you know, 18 blockchains and it will still just 
be gone like that. Uh, so companies like Digicert are trying to work on post-quantum cryptography. It's actually really fascinating if you get into it because they're doing you know elliptical curve stuff and it gets really fun. But uh, basically, I'm not worried about this because um, in three months, another computing company will have this the biggest RSA key ever so they can put it on their letterhead for the RSA conference. And then, um, you know, it'll all just kind of disappear and, you know, into thin air once someone create once Google creates a computer that's strong enough to serve ads quantumly, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I always think um, the the quantum computing discussion, especially with cryptography, not that it's overblown, because certainly, I mean, the science is there to demonstrate that, like, when we hit whatever amount of qubits that we need to hit, that becomes a major problem. I just I, I do think we are. A w still a ways away from one building the computers of the scale of the like literal number of qubits it would need to crack that and the two making those practical in any way are like two giant challenges uh that still mm -hmm. it, it it's not academic it's not like eventually it was guaranteed to happen it will probably happen because there's a huge financial interest in doing so I, I do think it was interesting uh in the ars technica piece i was reading up about this uh they were citing figures you know looking at like the latest uh intel uh, xeon gold processors and saying you know with a 32 core processor it would take you know eight thousand years or something ridiculous like that to do that and then but then the big caveat is of course, once quantum computing is, or you know, once we hit the the quantum supremacy moment for cryptography, uh, the house catches on fire and everything's uh, fire and brimstone. Uh, but um, yeah, I, um, there I can't remember. I know um, Ray Lucchese has written a, a ton about quantum computing and kind of a lot of the implications that will come uh, once we kind of hit that point. So I encourage you to check out his blog as well. There was also a security researcher, and now I cannot remember his name. I'm totally fuzzing on it. That's written a ton about this, but I will put it in the show notes uh, for this post uh, to check out later if that's something. Uh, uh, our listeners and uh, viewers are interested in. So really cool stuff. Uh, finally here, big news from Alphabet. Now we don't usually get into like corporate governance stuff, especially for a more, a more, a company that's as consumer facing perhaps as Alphabet and its uh, subsidiary, little subsidiary Google. Uh, but Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin have announced that current Google CEO Sundar Pichai will now be the CEO of Alphabet as well. Page and Brin will still be major shareholders and sit on the board of that holding company. That's Alphabet, what Alphabet is. Uh, it's been arguable how involved the two founders have been in day-to-day -day operations at Alphabet. Some staffers have said that basically since the formation of Alphabet, they've really stepped back. But this is a sign, uh, or I'm sorry, but is this a sign that Alphabet as a holding company is working or does having the same CEO for Google and Alphabet signal something else to you, Tom? Quick, name four other companies that are under the Alphabet holding company. Uh, we have DeepMind. No cheating. DeepMind, right? That's a company. Uh, Waymo. Um, uh, gosh. Um, what was the, all the, no, they've rolled um, one, that one security company back into Google or Alphabet or whatnot. Anyway, I did think it was very funny. Tom, I get, I get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I did think it was very funny that they were saying, now that Google's doing really well and our other bets business has taken off and it's like, I'm pretty sure you post giant losses for that uh, division on your balance sheet every quarter, but uh, there you go. Yeah. No, this, this is basically what it is, is that everybody got tired of these things being associated with Google. So they created a company out of Google to hold all of them. And guess what? Everybody still thinks they're associated with Google, <laughs> except for the financial people. So it's like, you know, Google's making trillions of dollars a year serving ads to my Nest thermostat. 
Well, what about those other companies? <laughs> ah, who cares? They're losing money. We'll just, well, you know what? <laughs> Basically, it's so that they can have individual Deadpool death clocks for all of them instead of just having <laughs> one inside of, of uh, Google that they have to keep resetting every time they kill a function. Uh, you know, God, I, dude, at this point, I, 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 does it really matter? Like, like Sergey is on a yacht somewhere in <laughs> Neptune and he doesn't care. I mean, Sundar's basically been running the company anyway. Uh, th this, this is not a big deal because all it is essentially doing is fuzzing this back together the way that it was before. I, 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 the, so I, I get the feeling it's like, it's, it's the, it's the stair step thing with, you know, you got to climb like the 18,000 steps to get to the guru on top of Everest <laughs> so that he can give you like a, 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 a tiny little, like, you know, cone of wisdom to take back and run your company. That that's basically Sergey and, and, and the, the, no, that op, operationally speaking, Sundar runs everything. This, that's, that's not a, a surprise at all. This is just formalizing that structure because I'm sure wall street's going to want it that way or something. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, to, getting to what I think you're saying, Tom, is that this is Google saying, okay, no one is believing that Waymo is a separate company in, in any yeah. meaningful way from Google, uh, even if it's just public perception. So, you know what? Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 Sundar, you know, uh, take the reins on everything. I, I do hope that somewhere Sergey is uh, wearing his Google Glass on his private island uh, and, uh, you know, just having a, having a really good time, having a chill time. Uh, so... I, I, I've seen someone, people saying, you know, this is kind of the the third uh, the third act for Google. Not not to say that the show is ending or something like that, but the third era of Google, I should say, not the third act. Um, and I do think it's, you know, it, it is significant. You know, they've they've definitely moved a long way from the uh, you know Eric Schmidt taking control of the kids' room uh, uh, situation. And I don't know. I mean, so would you say that this is a recognition that maybe that that restructuring into alphabet was, I don't know, a mistake, but a miscalculation perhaps on their part. Oh no, it wasn't a mistake. We don't make mistakes around Google. We just, we, we create things that should have never been created in the first place. And then we kill them. Now I think that this is basically them saying that the idea of alphabet in theory is not as great as the execution of what alphabet has become. Um, yeah. you know, maybe if you guys did more marketing under the name Alphabet instead of just making everything look like Google, you know, uh, you're not you're not wrong there, Tom. Um, I, I <laughs> you know, I was trying to think of how this if this would have any impact on something more uh, uh, directly related to stuff we talk about in the rundown, things like you know Google, uh, GCP and stuff like that. But you know, that's all still under the Google umbrella. That's not all going to change. It's still going to be uh, seemingly the distant third horse. <laughs> <laughs> in that room, yeah. uh, going forward, we haven't heard anything about any other shakeups internally within Google. So it seems like this won't uh, have too much impact on that end. But I thought it was pretty big news uh, for, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. So I thought that was interesting. All right. Well, that just will bring us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find more of your great stuff if you are so inclined? Oh, lots of places. Uh, NetworkingNerd.net. You can follow me on Twitter at NetworkingNerd. Uh, I make DOS jokes on occasion. And then uh, more great writing from me on gestaltit.com. Uh, lots of good security pieces coming out and some uh, great analysis of some exciting things coming in 2020. 
Tree is the greatest command in all of DOS history, so please uh, <laughs> type that in and enjoy some uh, some time off. Uh, you can find me on gestaltit.com. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology uh, for tweets uh, somewhat related to um, uh, parenting, Star Wars, food, all the greatest hits uh, you can find right there. Uh, and uh, some show news. Um, we're going to have a regular show next week, and then the week after that, so the 18th, uh, we are going to be doing kind of our year in review, looking back at some of the biggest news stories of the year. So make sure you tune in for that. Don't want to miss that. And we're going to be taking off, uh, unless anybody wants to show up for a Christmas Day uh, Gestalt IT rundown, you can do that. Uh, but we're going to take the next two weeks off after that for the holidays and the new year. Um, so just uh, want to keep everybody abreast of that as well. But like I said, we'll be back next week, uh, Wednesdays, 1230 p.m. Eastern Time, streaming on Facebook and then later uh, showing up on YouTube giving you your IT News of the Week. For myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for everyone here in the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.